Good morning, everybody. My name is Trent. I have the privilege of being the pastor here. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, we're going to open God's Word together in Acts chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, you can borrow one from the sides of the tech booth back there. Feel free to do that. <clears throat> you can borrow it if you need to borrow it, or if you need to take it with you, keep it. Perfectly fine with us. We will be so glad to buy new Bibles. That's not a problem. Um, as well as if you're a user of the Bible app, you can open up and find our live event and find scriptures and sermon notes and other stuff there. Uh, and uh, all of that's going to be happening right now. So uh, let's take a second and um, put ourselves before God together one more time in prayer and um, ask for his help, okay? Uh, Father, please, for these moments that we have here, uh, give us clear heads um, and hearts that are ready to receive. Uh, we need you to speak to both, um, both our head and our heart, so that we understand as well as know deep down inside. Um, shape us into who you want us to be. We've confessed before, so we do now. God, we don't want to be the same people who walked in here. Would you change us? Because that's what you do. Uh, Lord, and that's certainly what we need and what the world needs is a changed version of us. Transform us into who you want us to be. Um, and to that end, with clarity and power, I'm begging you that you would, by your Spirit, bring to bear the kingdom on us. Um, and, and under the weight of that glorious kingdom, may you um, do the things in us and through us that you want to. And we put all that in your hands now, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen, amen, amen. Okay, so Acts chapter 2. Let me just set this up a touch here. Uh, I have a very precocious, very curious five-year-old in my family who asks a lot of questions. Anybody have a five-year-old who doesn't ask a lot of questions? doesn't ask a lot of questions? Uh, the question of the moment um, in our household with my precocious five-year-old goes like this. Hey, Daddy, what's, and then you fill in whatever the blank is, what's blank made out of? It can be easy. Daddy, there's a tree. What's a tree made out of? Wood. But then she always pushes to the next level. What's wood made out of? <laughs> organic material. What's organic material made out of? Carbon atoms. I don't know. What do you want me to say? I mean, I don't know. I have a theology degree, honey, not biology, okay? What's biology, Dad? Just shh. Daddy, what's a car made out of? Plastic and rubber and metal. What's metal made out of? Or just, okay, I mean, that's kind of where we are. And so we go through all of this, and at some point I'm like, hey, what's on the radio? I mean, it's, you know, it gets down to that level. Uh, some people, because of their past or because of their present, um, they come to these kinds of moments and these kind of questions, and they say something like, hey, what's the, functionally speaking, What's the church made out of? Some people answer that with, well, wood and sheetrock and some. I mean, it's they assume that the church is the building. That's not how the Bible talks about church. Uh, some people say, well, it's it, it's an organization, and so it's made up of layers. That's not how the Bible talks about church. Uh, when, the, when the Bible talks about church, it talks about a group of people who are committed to certain things. And so that's really where we want to get to today is, is this, the passage that we're going to look at is kind of the church in its purest form, not necessarily its best form because it grew and it had some troubles down the way, but in its purest form because it's so new, they had committed their lives to Jesus and they were trying to figure out how to follow him together. 
And so uh, uh, the, the, this kind of commitment is very pure, right? And they're just trying to work this, some of this stuff out. So this text today is kind of about that. And really what I want to do is kind of um, start at the back of the passage and then work our way back towards the front of the passage because what we'll see is the results are amazing. Like when the church functions like the church, like God did some really cool things then. He, he also does some really cool things now through that. And then we're going to talk about how they got there. So here we are in Acts chapter 2. And what I want to do is start in verse 41. I know the, the front of the bulletin says verse 42. That's not a misprint. That's really uh, 42 is where we're going to start. But just for a, a, a touch of context, verse 41. <clears throat> so those who received his word, remember Peter had been preaching in Acts chapter 2, and these people had responded to the sermon from Peter. Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that, that day about 3,000 souls. So the movement of God had so come upon the people um, that the Spirit had brought into existence the church. Where previously there wasn't one, now we've got this church, and it's consisting of quite a few folks. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Some of your translations may say the breaking of the bread. We'll pick that up in a second. And the prayers, verse 43. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Here's verse 46. This is where we see the results, okay? Day by day, attending the temple together. So they gathered in, in larger settings like this and breaking bread in their homes. So they gathered in smaller settings like our small groups and Sunday school classes to share meals and encouragement, and all that kind of stuff. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So, I mean, that's the result of it, right? So God had moved, all of this stuff had happened, incredible things, movement of the spirit of God, and uh, these people came to know Jesus, and then they had some things that were happening. The result was they consistently gathered together in public, big public settings and in private settings, uh, and ministry was happening, and praising God, worship was happening, and they had favor um, with all men. Now, let me just ask you this. Uh, anybody know anybody that the church, more broadly, that when we talk about just the church, generally doesn't have favor with men? That's it's been a bad experience for folks. Sometimes that's the case, and indeed, there will always be folks outside who look at the church either generally or maybe specifically and say, no, 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 that is not good, it's not right, I can't believe that they would be like that and so forth and so on. I'm telling you that I think, and it has been our experience certainly over the past six months, I think that God allows, particularly in small geographic areas, neighborhoods, if you'll, if you'll allow that, that kind of neighborhoods, for, for churches to have favor, not, not necessarily broad cultural favor, but just there will always be persecution out there, always. That's what the Bible promises us. But for, to have favor in a geographic location, not unlike we've experienced. Um, today, this is weird, I just saw this on my calendar. Today marks the 11th, year uh, that I've been the pastor here, like today does. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, don't clap. Y- y'all are crazy. I can't believe you did that in the first place. Uh, I- I- I'm backing that up to say, when I look at how God has used us over those past 11 years, um, I-, I think he's allowed us to grow in that sense of favor in this particular locale. That's a pretty cool thing. And then, as a result of that, 
people were coming to know Jesus, and uh, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's what it says. So that's kind of the results in. Here's a question. What's that made out of? <laughs> like, okay, so those are the things that we're looking at and seeing on the outside, but what's that made out of? Great question. And so today I want to just kind of walk backward, as I said, through the passage. It's not normal that we would kind of approach it backward like this, but I think when we see those results and then walk backward, it's good. We've talked about the heart of the series as inward transformation and outward ministry, and so this kind of thing uh, and the favor that God has for this early church and for us, I think it's got some good stuff here. Here we go. Let's start in verse 44, 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, all believed uh, were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I wanted to start. Um, it kind of worked out well that I kind of started with the most controversial to talk about generosity. Why is that controversial? Because anytime anybody talks about money in church, people kind of go. So go ahead, get your shoulders all bunched up, and hold your breath real tight. Let your blood pressure go up and then breathe out, okay? Um, generosity. Uh, there, there are some particular lines of thinking when it comes to the economic systems that our cultures more broadly and worldwide have embraced. Here's one of them. It goes something like this. Um, what's yours is mine. Uh, m- most popularly, we call that communism, right? Uh, it's a failed economic system. Everybody has seen it go down the tubes. What's yours is mine. I had a professor, Dr. Lee Polk. I'm not even sure he's alive anymore. He, he was a speech prof uh, at Baylor. Stood up before us. Now, men and women, you need to know that the Bible teaches communism. And this is the passage that he pointed to. Um, I just want to point out that the Bible says nothing about what yours is mine in this passage. It says they, uh, they, were, they had all things in common. Verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings. They weren't, other people didn't lay claim to it. They were doing this voluntarily. What's yours is mine is not what the Bible teaches. That, let me say it again. It's not what the Bible teaches. The second one, a little more comfortable for us on this side of the pond, goes something like this. What's mine is mine. We call that capitalism, right? So communism, what's yours is mine. Capitalism, what's mine is mine. You need to leave my stuff alone. Get off my lawn. Uh, and, And that kind of thinking is also not represented here because they had all things in common. What then is the biblical idea of economics, if you will, and generosity? It goes something like this. God owns everything. And I am simply in middle management. I am the one who has been put in charge of a certain group of resources And I then, and and the manager, the biblical word for that is the steward, if you've heard stewardship, I'm the steward or the middle manager for that to make sure that they get to where God wants them to and they they get used in the way that God wants them to. Everything is God's and I'm in middle management. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Not part thereof, not sort of thereof. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the fullness thereof. So I get to treat my resources and, and respond uh, to things around me. I get, I get to do that with generosity because the, everything is God's and I'm, I'm, just a, I'm just a manager that's here. So th- this kind of generosity, it marked early Christianity. Why? Because 
Christians knew that God had been two reasons. Number one, God had, they knew that God had been very generous with them. It didn't take them very long. It didn't, they didn't have to look very far over their shoulder to see that God had indeed been generous with them. They were dead in their sins. God made them alive. They were far from God, and he brought them near. Over and over and over again, we could talk about all of these ways. They just knew that God had been so generous to them. And furthermore, they looked around at the world around them, and they saw need, and they said, if God's been generous with me, then I get to be a part of that too. So not only has he been generous with me, I'm going to be a generous person, but there's need out there, and I need to step in and be a part of that. Where does that come down for you and for me? Why did they have favor with God and men and the Lord um, adding to their number day by day, those who are being saved? I think it's in part because they live such a generous life. A little more communal um, in Acts chapter 2, different setting, all that kind of stuff. What does it look like for you and for me today? We talk about tithes. We talk about offerings. We talk about giving to the church. Everybody, don't do that. Here's why. Here's why. This is not admonition. Nobody's up here with a whip. That's not it at all. This is exhortation. This is encouragement. Last year, fiscal year 2017, our church, by a grand total of, I think, $232. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. But a grand total of $232 made budget. Isn't that awesome? With all of the crazy stuff that we faced in 2017, we made budget by $232. If I can confess something, because I'm a theology major, uh, a speech major in undergrad theology, uh, spreadsheets aren't necessarily my thing. When it first came to me, I thought that we were $232 short of budget and I was getting ready to write the check so that we could say it. Is that all right? But as it turns out, we were $232 over after all that we saw and all that we endured and all that we went through in 2017. Still, here we are. And the Lord gave favor with all men and he was adding to their number day by day. Those who were impacted by the ministry and, and uh, the, the gospel and the good news of Jesus. So please don't hear me as up here saying, oh, if you don't give, da, 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 da. listen, you gave. Let's continue. That's what I'm saying. Let's continue to be generous. Here's why. Here's why. Listen, you don't want, I don't want, none of us want ministry simply to exist. We want it to expand. Why? Because there are expanding needs out there around us. And so we want to be those kind of people. Okay, so just let's be generous. Uh, we've already taken up the offering. Okay, so it's not like I'm, okay, okay now, but we're going to pass the plate again. No, that's not what we're doing. I'm just simply telling you, be encouraged towards generosity because it makes a difference in a watching world. So if you will, you've kind of got this layer out here of what God's doing in the world. And underneath that, so to speak, is generosity. But there's something even underneath that. What's underneath that? It's ministry. Look at verse 43. Verse 43. Uh, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Skip down to the last phrase. We've quoted it about five times already, but the last phrase of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's ministry, right? That's ministry. What components of that? Okay, so we've got God doing work in the world and all of this favor with men and uh, uh, with the people around there and and stuff that was unfolding there. Uh, And generosity kind of sits one layer beneath that. And then I'm saying, I'm arguing that ministry sits a layer even underneath that. Why is that? Because they lived a, a life that was focused outward. There was an outward-focused life. They, they were thinking about others. Uh, they, were, they were trying to figure out how to serve others. And they lived with the gospel of Jesus on their lips. 
How, do, how did the Lord day by day add to those who were being saved? By witness, right? They opened their mouths and they said, hey, we believe that Jesus has died. We believe that he has come back from the dead and we need to live in light of that fact. We need to rethink our thinking like we talked about last week in light of that. Repent. Outward focused living with this gospel on their lips. That's how he added day by day to those who were being saved. But, but it was more than that, wasn't it? That's what verse 43 said. Um, all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Uh, there was also this supernatural life, a supernatural life that joins the Spirit of God and is uh, uh, in step with the Spirit of God um, and, and His movement in the world, a supernatural life. Wow, on all come upon every soul, wonders and signs, that kind of thing. Let's just let's pause for this, this, this question. I mean, out of these two things, these two bullets that are up there on the screen right now, an outward focused life and a supernatural life, I can only control one of those, right? Am I right? I, I can only control one. That's the first one, an outward focused life with the gospel on the lips. My experience tells me the text is going to tell us as Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, uh, as we unfold this thing. My experience tells me the more I am outward focused with the gospel on my lips, the more I will experience and see the supernatural life of joining the movement of the Spirit as He's at work in the world. So I can only control one of those, but the more I step into that, lean into that particular one, the more I see the other stuff happening around me. There was ministry. They were outward focused, and they were um, letting the Spirit do what the Spirit does. So generosity, kind of on the surface, underneath that is ministry. And now we kind of get down to, but what's, what's that made of? But what's that made of? And uh, I think verse 42 is really crucial for us because it's, it's, it's practices. I'll just give you a f- couple of examples here. Um, if, you, if you play golf, uh, Ben Hogan has this great uh, saying. Uh, Hogan says, I know a thousand things about the golf swing. Every one of them I learned from the dirt. Because what did he do? He just hit balls over and over again until they did what he wanted them to, right? He learned. Uh, you go to the doctor, this is a lot less um, pleasant. You go to the doctor, and he looks at you and says, hey, you need to lose some weight. You need to eat better and exercise. You're like, ugh. So what do you do? You figure out a plan to change your diet, and then you get up and walk or run or whatever it is that you're at, bike, whatever your exercise of choice is, right? You've got, you've got this plan that you make to, to eat differently, and you've got a plan to exercise. You've got these practices now that are in your life and in place in order to see the transformation come. So it is with the church. There are practices that they had early on that led them then to ministry, that led them then to generosity, that led them to favor with men and women and with people coming to know Jesus on a regular basis. But the hub of it, the root of it, the very center of that wheel, so to speak, um, were these kind of practices. So let's look at what they are. Verse 42. He says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Okay, so let's, those four things, let's start with the first one. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The first thing that they were devoted to, clearly, was the word. 
They were devoted to the Bible. That, what does that mean? That there was an ongoing, in their life, there was an ongoing submission to the authority of God's Word and the plain teaching of the Scriptures. An ongoing submission to the authority of the plain teaching of the Scriptures. A devotion to the Bible. I, what does that mean? That means I need to be in it? Yes. That also means I need to do what it says? Also, yes. Um, when a question comes up, well, is it like this or is it like this? No, no. It's how the Bible says that it is. Well, I mean, should I treat this person like this or maybe go this other way? You should do what the Bible says is best to do. One of the assumptions that the Bible makes that we as followers of Jesus also make is that Jesus has better answers to the big questions of life than you and I could come up with. If he's smarter than we are, then maybe we ought to listen. So we have an ongoing submission to the authority uh, of, the, of the scriptures and the plain teaching. I read an article this week. One of the people said uh, this. <clears throat> they were describing uh, their uh, engagement with Christianity as simply that they wanted, to live the, they wanted to live the life. That was the phrase. They wanted to live the life. What they were saying, I mean, listen, who's not for living the life? I'm in, right? But what they were saying was they wanted uh, a Christian kind of ethic, a Christian kind of way of life without all the stuff that undergirds it, right? They didn't want all the doctrine and other stuff. They wanted just a Christian way of life without all the other stuff. Here's what's important about that. It's all the other stuff, all that doctrinal stuff that helps make the Christian ethic and way of life make sense. We sang a while ago. Um, I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Trinity there, right? three in one. This mysterious, incredible... I mean, that says something about how we treat one another, right? Each of us have value. Each of us, uh, uh, should, we should love one another and this kind of thing. I mean, that's all rooted in that doctrine right there. If you unmoor this kind of ethical thing from the doctrine that it was originally tied to, man, you can drift off in all sorts of ways. And that, that, that's what happens a lot. People get unmoored and um, they, they cease to devote themselves to the Bible. And because they don't practice that, because they're not devoted to that, they drift off. It, they never drift towards holiness, folks. They always drift off. Another person said, different article, different blogger, as a matter of fact. Uh, let me just... Yeah, let me just move on here. Different blogger says this, that they were in the process of retelling the biblical story. What they meant by that was simply this, I'm going to reinterpret the Bible and force it to fit the culture that I'm in. Listen, the reason why I said there was an ongoing submission to the authority of the Bible is because there are times when the Bible says things that we don't like. Anybody with me? There are times when it is very difficult to live out the things that the Bible says, either because there's external cultural pressure wanting us to give way on things like sexuality or other main issues, or there's internal pressure that says, no, I do not want to bless those who curse me. Thanks, but no thanks. The reason we need an ongoing submission to the authority of the Scriptures it's because of that. We don't get to retell the story. We get to listen to and submit ourselves the story to the story that God has already told. We need a devotion to the Bible. <clears throat> when we do, what we find is the Bible changes us 
and, and even God who lovingly confronts us with the, the things in the text, uh, the things that are there on the page, God lovingly confronts us, and that is how we are transformed. When he sees, when we see that we need to change, and he helps us change, but it all starts with a devotion to the Bible. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Next thing he says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. In other words, there was this devotion um, to fellowship. Devotion, excuse me, to relationships. They were connected. They knew that they could not live this Christian life on their own. They knew that God didn't design them to live on their own. They wanted to be connected with one another. Um, that is more difficult than ever in our kind of, especially in our suburban context where we've got kids going here and soccer and basketball. I'm just talking about my family and all this kind of stuff where we've got stuff programmed, right? Where well, we want our kids to have opportunities and grow and that kind of thing. And, and we want them to be good people too. So, I mean, we, we, it's hard. It's hard. Especially when um, we we refuse to yield family time, and so what happens is some of our friendships begin to slip. Uh, uh, different articles in the New Yorker, I think, uh, a guy a guy wrote an article um, quoting the former Surgeon General, the one who uh, just resigned last year, um, saying this: uh, that loneliness is the greatest American epidemic of our time. Loneliness. I was intrigued. I thought to myself, well, I'll get to reading. So I read along. This is the Surgeon General. Study, I believe it was out of BYU, he quoted, um, loneliness means that you have a greater proclivity and increased risk for Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, and stroke, and you are 32% more likely to die um, prematurely uh, than if you were not experiencing lonely. It is a greater risk, according to this same study, it is a greater risk to health, to physical health, than obesity. It has the same impact upon health as if you smoked 15 cigarettes a day. Shut your mouth. Are you kidding me? And then I think to myself, so where does a middle-aged guy with four kids go to find such relationships? Like, where would you go? Down to the Y? No. To the bar? No. What would be a good place where family could also engage and he could still find good friendships? Where would that? That sounds like church to me. Like that's what we're supposed to be. There might be a good reason they, devo they devoted themselves to the Bible and then to relationships. I don't think this fixes everything. I don't. I, I'm not. I, I don't think this is a panacea. I really don't. You know what makes me wonder though? It makes me wonder if the epidemic of loneliness is right. How many situations could be avoided? How many tragic situations, how many deadly situations could be avoided if we were to be the people devoted to relationships and engage with one another and let the epidemic of loneliness, uh, uh, or excuse me, attack the academic, epidemic of loneliness through intentional, important relationships called church. I just wonder, here's what I do know. Statistics and good research have proven women who get lonely, they begin to hurt 
And women who get lonely and begin to hurt, hurt themselves. Men who get lonely get hurt, and men who get lonely who get hurt tend to hurt others. Didn't we see that this past week? And again, I, I, I don't think this, I don't, I don't think this is a panic. I don't think this is going to fix it all. I don't think this is going to fix it all. I wonder what it could fix, though. A devotion to relationships. How, how do relationships um, help us and transform us? What are the practices? Uh, what are the practices in relationships that do that? I'll just tell you two things. Number one, relationships make us better. They make us better. Uh, um, this is from Proverbs 27, two different verses in Proverbs 27. Um, it says this, uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's verse six. In other words, somebody sits down across a cup of coffee from you or whatever. Hey, listen, I heard how you talk to your husband and I just want you to know uh, we need to do better than that right there. We need to do better than that. I, I'm going to bruise you now so that you don't bleed later. Hey, listen, I saw the way, um, dad, that you spoke to that kid and just railed on him. I just think you need to dig yourself out of that friend frustrated hole and maybe offer some encouragement here. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Don't you talk to me about my kids like that? I'm talking to you about your kids. Why? Because I'm devoted to you in relationship. Relationships make us better, right? Secondly, verse 17, just a few verses later in the same chapter, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. We need one another to become the best of us, right? We need one another to, to, to sharpen us so that we um, become who we're supposed to be. God uses those relationships to make us who we are. When iron hits iron, sometimes you get sparks. Everybody had that before? Everybody else is in perfect relationships, I guess. Sometimes that it gets a little flinty, but... but um, it does shape us, and so that's good. So relationships shape us to who they are, but they do more than that. They also help either relieve uh, the burden or take away the burden of those things that are seeking to tear us down. So Galatians 6.2, Paul writes, and he says this, um, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We want to be people who do what Jesus said to do, right? We want to be people who fulfill the law of Christ. Yes, yes, yes. How do we do that? We bear one another's burdens. That's what we do. That only happens in the context of a devotion to relationship. Right, we gotta, we got to move on here. Um, verse 42, they devoted themselves. Let's just add one more thing. I can't let this go. It takes some diligence, folks. Relationships are not easy. It takes diligence. It's way easier to get burned once and run. Either run away completely or run to faux friends that you post online to, right? Who will like the things that you write. It, it takes a lot of diligence to stick in these relationships. But if the Bible is anything, it is true to the nitty-gritty of life. It doesn't, it doesn't mince words about the nitty-gritty stuff. No, it's, it's right there in the middle. It takes a lot, but man, it's worth it. It's worth it. So be devoted. Be devoted to relationships. Devoted to the Word. Devoted to relationships. Continuing on, verse 42. Apostles teaching, fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Again, some of your translations may have the bread. There is a definite article there, the breaking of the bread, talking specifically about communion here. Uh, the, the, the practice of uh, the gathering of the saints to, to break the bread like Jesus broke the bread, to remember that Jesus was broken for us, to drink the cup, remember that Jesus' blood was poured out for us. So we have uh, his brokenness means our wholeness. His shedding of blood means our forgiveness. In other words, the, 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 to pull it up a little bit, this, this, we are devoted to communion because we're devoted to the gospel. 
We're devoted to the gospel. We're devoted to this message that says, um, his brokenness means my wholeness. His piercing means my forgiveness. We're devoted to the gospel and we're devoted to the public worship of the God who brought us that gospel. That's what that means. Um, <clears throat> it, it is, if you will, when we practice these things, it's, it's, it's um, reminding ourselves of the story that God has told and the transformation happens as we gain perspective on who God is, on who he has made us to be, and that shapes us. It moves us towards things like hope and peace and love and joy and forgiveness and other things that are crucial um, in the kingdom of God. We are devoted to communion. Again, in a slightly larger picture, we're devoted to the gospel and the, and the worship of the God who brings it to us. First Sunday of every month, we, we set aside time to celebrate communion. Sometimes we go to tables in the corners. It's a picture of you and me coming to Jesus. We're leaving where we are, and we're coming to Jesus. The next month, we do it differently, where we pass plates to one another. Why do we do that? It's a reminder, hey, listen, we're serving one another in Jesus' name. That's, what we, that's why we do it the way that we do it. What we want to practice is this devotion to communion and to the gospel. Lastly, um, and it says the prayers, the devotion to the prayers. They, they, they had set times where they prayed every day as part of their rhythm of life. Uh, more broadly, this devotion to prayer means uh, that we are transformed as we encounter God. As we see him, so we are transformed to be like him. That's 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. We used, uh, we're beholding this just as a mirror dimly, very dimly right now, uh, but we are being changed from one degree of glory to the next, is what it says. As we behold him, we are being changed to be like him. And furthermore, as we uh, are, are kind of seeing him in prayer, talking to him, communing with him in prayer, we also figure out that, hey, listen, if I need to lean on myself, that's a really bad play. So again, the Proverbs, very, very practical book, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Why? Because you're not smart enough. I'm not smart enough. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and then he does some pretty incredible stuff. As we devote ourselves to prayer, we not only see him and become like him, but we figure out, hey man, it's way better to trust God and follow him and do what he says than it is to lean on my own understanding. God, I don't understand it all. I'm going to lean on you instead. So again, these practices were at the very hub of who they were and that led to ministry and that led to generosity and that led to favor and evangelism and all these kinds of things. So, I mean, all of the things that get built up start at this one little course. So this is the last thing. I just need to ask you these questions. Out of the four that are there, two of them are personal, right? Bible and prayer. I can do that on my own. Two of them are definitely relational relationships and communion, right? We don't do this on our, by ourselves. We do this as, as a group. Um, in other words, God doesn't just save a person. He makes a new people, right? That's how it works. Out of those four things that are up there, those four, which do you need to put a star by to say, hey, listen, that's, I, need to, I need to step into that. I, I, need to, I need to make some progress in that. Ah, golly, you know, I kind of gotten off my Bible reading plan. I hit Leviticus and everything. <laughs> it happens. It happens. I just need to devote myself to the Bible. Or, hey, man, there's some people that I need to pray for. Or there are some people in my life that I just need to open myself up to and commit to. However it goes. I need to put myself in a position to be in public worship regularly because we celebrate the gospel and all that it is. Which of those four needs a star for you? And then what's the next step for you to take? 
Out of those four things, which needs a star? And then what's the next step? Let me pray, and then we'll sing one more song. Uh, Father, thanks for a few minutes here in your word. I'm grateful. Uh, Thanks for the church and how you have moved and gathered. Thanks for how you're shaping us even now as we ponder the things that we need to ponder from this morning. God, I do pray uh, that you would speak to your people personally. Uh, You would help them to know, again, by your spirit, um, where they need the challenge, what they need to do next. And Lord, nobody's signing up to, to walk perfectly. We're not expecting that of ourselves. Certainly, I think you, you have a lot of compassion toward us. But God, we do want to make progress. So don't, don't let us settle for something less than that. It's through progress that you will bring transformation in our lives and, and, and to the world around us. So let that be our experience now. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.